Well, it's a great reading, and it's the uh, subject that we're going to be turning our hearts to today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can hear your word read. We pray now that you might open our spiritual eyes, soften our hearts, that we might hear and respond to your message. Father, we thank you that because you've risen, you hear our prayers, and so we pray them confidently in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're asking the question, why is Sunday better? Why is Easter Sunday better? Our, our promotion had been, come for a good Friday and an even better Sunday, right? And, and hopefully you came for Good Friday. Good Friday's pretty good. We heard about Jesus' death on the cross in our place for our sins. Fantastic. And I want to tell you today that Easter Sunday is even better. Right, well, there's some people who are enthusiastic already. I haven't got started, so this is great. We're going to have, a, we're going to have a, good, a good morning. It's going to be fantastic. So I want to suggest to you that it's really good. And when we did Friday, I said, well, why is, why is, why is Good Friday good? And, and I came up with some kind of joke examples about chocolate and work. Here's the thing. When it comes to Easter Sunday, it's so serious that I actually don't want to joke with you to start. I want to tell you why it's important that we have Easter Sunday. I want to do it as you reflect on these words with me. What I need is something new and effective, which I've never heard or read about before. For everything I've heard or read before is powerless against grief like this. The reason that we need Easter Sunday is because of the grief and the pain of death. That's why we need it. But this idea, this need is not new. This quote is from a man called Pliny the Younger, who was writing in 100 AD. He ended up being governor in part of Turkey for the Roman Empire. And so when he says, I need something new, he's aware of Greek philosophy. He's aware of Roman gods He's aware of pagan teaching, and he says, what I need is something new, something beyond all of that. I've never heard it. I've never, I don't know what it is, but I'm longing for it, because nothing in this world satisfies the pain and grief of death. And we would do well to reflect on that, and some of us know that pain and know that question. And so I want to convince you today that Easter Sunday is good, because on Easter Sunday, only Easter Sunday, and the resurrection gives us the hope and answers to the longings and questions of our souls. It's only here that we can have the satisfaction of the longings of our souls. So let's dive in. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a whole variety of different takes on the resurrection and why it matters. Well, I don't know how many of you are gardeners. Anyone here a gardener? I see one hand at the back. Well done, Ellie. A couple of you. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Casting aspersions from the back. That's okay. So, so here's the thing. You can, you can garden by going to Bunnings and getting like a plant and putting it in the ground. That's not too bad, right? Or you can do it the really old school way and get like a little packet of seeds, right? You heard of these seeds? You heard of them? Yeah, okay, good. And you can put seeds in the ground, right? And so the interesting thing about putting seeds in the ground is your whole hope you know, there's a little picture that says this is tomatoes. Your whole hope, right, disappears. It's gone into the ground and then it's utterly covered over. And so you stand there going, 
I'm hopeful that tomatoes emerge here somewhere, but we have to go through a moment of complete loss, total disconnection from our seed, and it's only by faith that we wait for something to emerge, a glorious thing that will eventually push its way out of the ground and prove to us that our faith was not in vain. It's a pretty good analogy for a tomb with Jesus in it, isn't it? How's this for a question? How can I be sure that I'm fully forgiven? How can I be sure that I'm fully forgiven? We were told on Friday that Jesus paid the price for our sins. But how do we know that he's not just another dead Palestinian teacher? How do we know that something special happened and that Jesus just didn't end up unfortunately crucified by Pilate? How do we know? Well, we know first of all because Jesus told us it was going to happen to him. Jesus told us it was going to happen to him. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death couldn't hang on to Jesus. He literally had to burst forth from the tomb because his death had paid the price completely for our sins. And if we fast forward to Revelation, there's a picture of the end times and there's a picture of a throne with a lamb on it looking as if he'd been slain. And in this picture that the Bible builds for us in Revelation, there's a song being sung. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What had Jesus done by dying? He'd utterly paid the price for our sins. How do we know that they're paid? Because he didn't stay dead. He conquered death showing that the price had been paid. The resurrection is great because it declares Jesus paid it all. Well, I was talking about predicting things. Has anyone seen Groundhog Day? Has anyone watched it more than once? Okay, that's good. That's good. All right, so the premise of Groundhog Day, if you don't know, go watch it, it's good fun, um, is that this man wakes up on the same day every day. Every day he wakes up and it's the same day, exactly the same spot, exactly the same time, every day, for a whole period of time. And the thing is, he starts to get really familiar with this day so that he can predict what's going to happen. He's, he can say, well, this guy's going to fall from the tree, so I'm going to run over and catch him when he falls. Or that this guy's going to open a door over here and he won't. He, he takes advantage of the fact that he knows what's going on. We want to ask the question, if Jesus paid it all, that's great. But how do I trust what Jesus has said? How can I be sure what Jesus said is trustworthy? Well, I told you that Jesus had promised that he would rise again. And here we see it. If you've been with us for the last term, you've seen Jesus promise these things. It says in Luke 9.22, Jesus talking about himself. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now you can predict you're going to die. It'll happen. It's nothing particularly revelatory to say that you're going to die. Okay? And you might even be able to predict that you're going to die because there's mounting political pressure. Martin Luther King said that. He said, look, I can see that I might not make it to the end of this journey. He anticipated that he'd be killed. He could feel the pressure. So predicting your death isn't particularly remarkable. However, predicting what you're going to do after your death is pretty remarkable. Because most of the time, our ability to predict what we're going to do is dependent on the fact that we're alive to do it. 
Would that be fair? And so it's one thing to say, I'm going to die, but then to say what you're going to do three days later, that's pretty much in someone else's hands most of the time, isn't it? So here's Jesus. He promised three times that he would rise from the dead. And then we get this account. Have a look with me in Luke 24. We get this account. He, he meets his disciples. And uh, if you see it in verse 41, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Jesus predicted that he would come to life again. He did die on the cross, and then he appeared to his disciples. Now, it could have been that they had a mass delusion. This has been suggested, hasn't it? They were all so overwhelmed with grief that what what happened was they all had an apparition of Jesus. Here's what a mutual delusion can't do. Eat fish. In fact, I don't even know why fish is on the menu at all. But anyway, there it is. A delusion, a mutual delusion can't eat fish. Jesus is trustworthy because he was really present in the room after his death. The reason the resurrection is amazing is because it proves Jesus trustworthy. He said he would rise from the dead and he did. If you can trust that he did that, you can trust him when he says that I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The other things that Jesus said are believable if you can believe that he kept his word of the resurrection. The resurrection is awesome because it proves Jesus is trustworthy. He said it and he did it. Now, here's some of my sporting heroes. I don't know who your sporting heroes may be. Stephen Waugh, love his work. Uh, Anna Mears, amazing track cyclist. I don't know if you know Anna. And uh, Michael Jordan, right? Why are they famous? They're all famous for doing stuff. They're famous because they achieved great things. Multiple gold medals, multiple Ashes wins, multiple NBA champions and MVPs and all stuff you're not really interested in. But they're awesome, right? They were heroes because of what they did. Now, the Christian church is founded and built on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So the question is, what is it about Jesus that makes him worthy of worship? What is it about Jesus that makes him worthy of worship? Well, let's have a look. In Acts 13.34, we're told that God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Jesus will never die again. Secondly, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, that after his resurrection, God raised him up. It says God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why is the resurrection awesome? The resurrection is awesome because we have an indestructible king over everyone. You know, all of our superheroes, all, all of the people that we would honour, we, we long for them to be like this, but they're all flawed. Only one is the perfect, the risen, the indestructible king to whom every knee will bow. Jesus is worthy of worship because he'll never die and because his name is the highest in all of creation. Does anyone know who this bloke here is? Oh, well done. Fantastic effort. 
Now, when Storm and Norman is the correct answer, does anyone know who Storm and Norman is? American soldier, yes. He was the Forsyth general who led the, uh, the, the forces into Iraq um, in the first Gulf War. And uh, he did an incredible job. In 100 hours, uh, they won the war, basically. It's an extraordinary feat of military victory. Uh, if you want to go read about it, you won't. But if you do, you can go and Google him. He's fantastic. So here's the thing. Storm and Norman got his reputation because it was all about movement and totally overcoming the enemy, okay? And I think when it comes to Easter, we think, well, hang on. (laughs) We see great victories in the world. Dead bloke on a cross. How is that glorious? What's victorious about that? It actually was a picture of shame and humiliation. I said to you guys on Friday, it took 500 years before Christians started putting it in their art. 500 years before they could even put a picture of Jesus together. It was so appalling and humiliating. And yet we say that Jesus is the highest, the the most amazing person in the world. Where's the victory? Where's the extraordinary? I've got a little excerpt here from Ephesians chapter 1. I don't know if you know, but Ephesians chapter 1, the whole chapter is one sentence. Did you know that? So so there's actually no full stops in there, right? It literally just unfolds as an avalanche. So I'm going to pick it up mid-sentence, okay? I, I want you to hear how amazing this is as it talks about Jesus and why he is victorious. This is a good prayer for us too. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may, the, may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance for his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but in the one to come. The cross looked like humiliation and defeat. The resurrection shows it was victory and the payment for sin. The resurrection is great because it declares the supremacy of God's power and Jesus' glory. The reason we've got an empty cross, the reason that many of you will have an empty cross around your necks is because Jesus wasn't, the last word for Jesus wasn't crucified Jesus. It's empty tomb Jesus. That's where the power, that's where the glory, that's where the authority was proven to us. The resurrection is great because it declares the supremacy of God's power and Jesus' glory. Now, I asked before if any of you were gardeners. Some of you might be timid and say you don't have a garden, but you have a pot plant. Is that right? Oh, come on. You do. Um, do you keep your pot plants alive? Or do you just, t- you just tick them off and you keep going back to Bunnings and replacing them and replacing them and replacing them? And you can't, you can't go anywhere else because they're, they're too expensive if you go somewhere else because it's got to be a Bunnings pot plant before it dies. So here's the thing. Don't we want our pot plants to live forever? I, I don't know. We used to have an Afri- African violet in my house when I was a kid. I don't know, whatever. We didn't do anything to it, but it stayed waxy, green, and death-like forever. It was, it was a remarkable plant. I don't, I don't know. Maybe my mum watered it. I don't know, but it, it just lived forever. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. 
Sorry? Some of us. No. <laughs> it's probably true. It's probably true, Kathy. It probably was plastic. Here's the thing, though. We're increasingly, we're increasingly getting plastic, aren't we? Yeah? We're trying to make, make our outside fit the inside hope that we long to live forever. And so if I can look like I haven't aged, then maybe I'm winning, right? Just don't tell my insides or my bones, but I'll, I'll, I'll Botox and plastic it up and I'll look like I'm Botox and plastic up. I mean, I'm brand new and young forever. What, what do we long? What, why do we do any of that? Because as a society, we want to live forever. If I was to tell you that everyone in this room will die, you will all think I'm talking about the person next to you, won't you? You think, oh, that's terrible. I hope they're all okay. Admit it. It's true. That's what you're thinking. You'll all die. Yes, yes, I know. But you, you'll be... It's, we, have, we live in this absolute delusion that we will live forever. And the reason is because God has set eternity in our hearts. There is a longing for us to live forever. And it's not wrong. The problem is we can't live forever on our own. Let's have a look at the Bible and see what it says. Is there any hope for those who will die? In Romans 10, it says this, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what does that mean for us? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Actually, a little while ago, um, Luke was preaching up here and he said, I don't know if you've noticed, but some of the things that Jesus said would be incredibly nonsensical or outstandingly rude on the lips of a normal person, right? So I want you to pretend that you've just met me and I stand up in front of you and I go, hey, everyone, welcome to church. So glad you're here. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, at that point, you'll think I'm a nutter. And you'll pat me on the head and you'll go, you'll need to sit down and someone will have to come and take over this service because clearly you're not fit to be in charge. But no one will think, gracious, I could live forever by listening to that bloke. We would never think that, would we? And yet Jesus unapologetically says, I am the resurrection and the life. That is either true or it's audaciously wrong. Yes? There's no, there's no middle ground for that. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? There's an extraordinary promise being made by Jesus here. It's a promise for life eternal. The reason the resurrection is great is because through faith, it offers us life eternal. Brothers and sisters, you can live forever. Just not on your own and without the plastic bits. Here's why it matters. Here's why it matters. I don't know when the last time you were at a funeral was. I spoke to a man who came and said, straight after the service this morning, he came and said to me, he said, uh, I'm so thankful for the words that you spoke today. I buried my wife's brother this last week. I needed to hear it. Because whether we want to believe it or not, 
we will be at funerals soon and maybe our own. The question we want to know is, I want to know if my loved ones are okay. That's the question we all have at a funeral. Will my loved ones be okay? Will they be okay? And I want to show you there is hope. And I want to do that by going to a passage in a letter written to a church in Thessalonica. This is a fantastic passage. I won't read you all of it, although I could. Go home and have a look for 1 Thessalonians, first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4. Go and look it up. It's, it's full of extraordinary detail. I want, to, I want to read this to you because it matters. If this isn't true, then there are better things to be doing on Sunday morning than this. It's a beautiful day out there. But I want to tell you why you're here today or why I hope you are. It says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the, the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. And then he says there will be a trumpet blast on the last day and the dead will be raised and those who are still alive will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. And then he finishes by saying, and so encourage one another with these words. Those that we love who trust in Jesus, we will be reunited with. God will raise them up on the last day. Why does the resurrection matter? The resurrection matters. It's great because we have real hope, not a Hallmark card. We have real hope, not a Hallmark card. And guys, you have to forgive me. I've said this to you before. But when I'm at a funeral, and it's a non-Christian funeral, it is one of the few places that it seems our society believes it's acceptable for adults to lie to other adults. Have you seen this? People stand up and they sprout rubbish that no one believes about the departed. Ah, oh, they're up there now having a beer. Based on what? They're in heaven now watching us. They didn't like God. They don't believe in heaven, but you've installed them there now? It's a lie that no one believes and it offers no comfort to anyone. Brothers and sisters, on that day when we stand at a funeral, we want to have grounded hope, something that we can sink our teeth into that will guarantee us comfort in the face of death. And it is not found in hallmark card pleasantries and adults lying to one another. It's found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you go, look, you keep on talking about this resurrection from the dead. I want to know what happens after, the de uh, after I've died. And, and we say, yeah, but you keep on talking about the resurrection. Who could believe in the resurrection? Let, let me give you some objections to why this is ridiculous, this resurrection thing. Jesus didn't die on the cross. His disciples stole the body. His enemies stole the body. They got the wrong tomb. Jesus escaped from the tomb. Or it's all just a pack of lies. How can you really take any comfort from the resurrection when all these things are against it? Let me see if I can knock some of these down for you. 
Jesus didn't die on the cross. I give you professional killers, the Roman soldiers. They weren't amateurs at crucifixion. Did you know this? We kind of figure, oh, they were just getting around to figuring out crucifixion. It was a refined torture of the Roman Empire. How many people do you reckon got off the cross for good behavior? Guys, I say this to you because this sort of rubbish persists. Maybe Jesus didn't die on the cross. Professional killers nailed him. Professional killers shoved a spear up through his ribcage. I can assure you they did not let anyone alive down from the cross. Well, maybe he did die after all, right? And they put, they put his body in the tomb. But, but what really happened was the disciples stole the body. Well, let me, let me think with you for a second. What tomb did his disciples put his body in the first time? It wasn't just a scrappy cave. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man and they laid him in his tomb because they wanted to honour Jesus because he was the great teacher. They didn't put him in a hole in the ground. They put him in a beautiful new tomb, right? Now, whatever you think, the disciples did proclaim that Jesus was the Lord of the universe after his resurrection. That's what they proclaimed. So if you'd stolen his body... Where would you put it? My comment would be, if the disciples stole the body, where's the new tomb? Nobody who loved Jesus would discard his body. Are you with me? Even if they were making up a lie about him, they'd have to honour the body, which would have turned into a shrine, which would have turned into a place of pilgrimage, which would have turned into a church and a mount. There is no shrine where the bones of Jesus lie. That's okay. The disciples didn't have the body. That's why there's no, sh no shrine. The enemy stole the body, right? Well, if the enemy stole the body, my question would be, where's the stinky corpse? Because in Jerusalem, the people proclaimed, Jesus is risen from the dead. And the Jews go, look, we took the body for safekeeping, okay? Here's a basket full of stinky bones. Well, that puts a stop to this Christianity nonsense pretty quickly, doesn't it? If the enemy stole the body, they'd have to have done that. Wouldn't they produce the stinky corpse? What about they got the wrong tomb? I love this one, right? They go to a tomb, they roll back the stone. Oh, he's gone. Three doors up, stinky body, right? And people go, that's what happened. Okay, that's, that's what happened. They just got the wrong tomb. Because I just offer you this. There's always the next day. So they go into Jerusalem, proclaiming, Jesus is alive, he's alive. And Joseph goes, oh, boys, problem. Three doors up that way. It doesn't stick, does it? Even if they got the wrong tomb on the day, someone would have corrected them and then there's a stinky body and we're back to square one. You with me? Can't be true. What about that Jesus escaped the tomb? Well, this, is, this is the most hilarious one for me, but okay, let's, let's do it. He's crucified, he's flogged, he has a spear stuffed, shoved up his rib cage. He's then wrapped in strips. He's laid in a tomb with a stone. But okay, let's get there. He survives the, uh, the, the shock, the, the blood loss. He wiggles his way out of his strips of linen. He rolls from inside the tomb, the stone thing up, right? Okay, so now we've got Jesus. He's broken out, okay? All right, what happens next? What did he do next? He's the most famous man in Israel. 
He's a person who spent his last three years teaching. And you've got him alive outside the tomb at Passover week with a million people in Jerusalem and nothing happens. He just vanishes and goes to have some pasta somewhere in Rome. It's utterly implausible. Or what about the fact that people say it's all lies? All I'd say is if it's all lies, they preached in Jerusalem the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I can show you Roman and Jewish historians who say they proclaim that Jesus is risen from the dead. And if you say nothing happened, it's all made up, then you have a bigger miracle than I do. Because where did the story come from? Where did the conviction come from? Where did 300 years of resistance to persecution come from if nothing happened? As historians say, there is a resurrection-sized hole torn in human history. You think that you've brought doubt to the resurrection account. Who could believe this? I want to show you doubt is in the resurrection account. Have a look at me at chapter 24, verse 1. Now, come on, look with me. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. How believing in resurrection were they? If they believed in resurrection, they would have brought IV fluid and a hash brown. Are you with me? Nobody was going to the tomb to see a resurrected Jesus. His own disciples were going to the tomb to see a dead body and they were bringing perfume and deodorant to make sure the place didn't stink up. Oh, then we've got the next thing that happens here, verse 11. The women rush back and say, he's alive, he's alive. And the men who are going to be the foundation of the church, the leaders of the early church, this is in the account here. The men who are the foundations for the church say they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Well, that's awkward, isn't it? They didn't respond with faith. They weren't, oh, we've been doing our Bible study and it's exactly right, women. That's what we were expecting. It wasn't the case. There's doubt in the account of the resurrection of Jesus. But yet we see what I received, I passed on to you of, of first importance, that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. Why is the resurrection great? It's great because it passes the plausibility test. If you've got a better explanation for the, for the empty tomb, come tell me. I've been doing this for a while. Pretty sure you don't. But come tell me. I reckon it passes the plausibility test and it points to your participation. If he is raised, you will be raised too. Has anyone seen one of these in a kid's playground? Has anyone been forced to play them with kids? How many games do you get through? I'm at about three games before I go, this is a stupid game. It's utterly worthless. Whoever goes for the middle wins, or you lose because someone wasn't paying enough attention, right? That's how I beat the kids, right? But I think sometimes our life can feel like this, a silly game with no purpose. And so we ask ourselves the question, I want this life to have meaning. Does this life have any meaning? And the answer is found in the resurrection, I want to tell you. It says in Acts 17, as Paul is preaching to the wise people, the Greek people, he says, for, I set it, for God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God says that Jesus will be the judge and the proof is that he raised him from the dead. And then in Revelation again, we get a picture of a great throne. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the book, are recorded in the books. The resurrection is great because it shows that all will be judged by the risen Jesus. It means that our lives are not worthless, that we will give an account for everything we do and say. The resurrection assures us that we will have to give an account for the life that we live. I like uh, this little fortune cookie thing. Uh, It says, a plan you've been working on for a long time is beginning to take shape. Who goes, yes? Yes! And the rest of you go, I should get on to planning, yeah. Here's the thing. I want to know that my struggles are worth it. We want to know, is it going to be worth it? All that hardship, all of that hope. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, an amazing chapter on the resurrection, it says this, but thanks be to God, he gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because if we are raised, you and I one day will hear and be at this amazing place called heaven where these words will be declared. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Guys, I can't wait for the day where sin and sickness and death are banished forever. Resurrection assures me of that hope. Nothing else. The resurrection is great because victory is ours and our waiting will not be in vain. It will not be in vain. So what do we do with this Easter Sunday? What do we do? Three things for us to think through. Maybe you're amongst the disbelieving disciples, the ones who didn't believe the report. My encouragement for you would be to examine the tomb. Go check it out. Come and do Jesus for the curious with me. Read through the accounts. And if you won't examine the tomb, I would ask you to consider your own. How do you face your own demise without Jesus? Secondly, some of you might be pondering, like Peter, you're thinking, I'm not sure, but it sounds pretty good. Can I encourage you today to commit to following Jesus? You can have confidence starting today. You can know for sure today. And my encouragement to you would be to get onto that. Today's a great day to get saved. Today's a great day to say, I am trusting Jesus. I've given up trusting myself. I see that he's paid the price for my sins. I want the assurance of hope that comes from the resurrection. I will make him my Lord. I will join my story to his story that I might live forever. Today's a great day to do that. Thirdly, a whole bunch of you will be faith-filled followers. You'll have been trusting Jesus for a long time. Can I encourage you to wait well by witnessing? If this is true, it's pretty good news, isn't it? Pretty good news? Tell you what we should do. We should know that we have hope beyond the grave, that our sins can be utterly forgiven, and we definitely should keep that to ourselves. That would be an appalling error, wouldn't it? Arguably, it would be cause for judgment, certainly for accusation by our friends and those who we love. Yes? You knew this and you didn't tell me? Secondly, if it's true, we need to wait by worshipping. If Jesus is the risen saviour of the world, let's pour our hearts out to him. And I expect we'll have a practical in that very soon. I want to finish with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, The New Testament writers speak as Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. 
He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. He is risen. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have raised Jesus from the dead and it makes a difference in every possible way. Lord, I pray for those today who are doubting that they might run towards the tomb and check it out. I pray for those who have been circling around the edge of making this decision that they might make the decision today. Know the forgiveness. Know the assurance. I pray for those of us who know these things and treasure them that we would wait well by bearing witness to Jesus and worshipping him with all our hearts. Amen.